So I will be using Sadrian ontological principles to discuss the existential foundation of freedom of thought and expression. And with that, the aim of this presentation is to show that Sharia, be it in the form of the Quran and Sunnah or their interpretations, cannot stipulate limitations to freedom of expression in and of itself through the notions of apostasy, blasphemy, kutub ad-dilal, inkar dururiyat al-madhab, or deen, or by spiritual or psychological threats of committing kufr by entertaining doubts or questions about God or the Prophet or the Quran or anything of the sort. This is because Sharia itself is contingent upon existential property of growth and therefore Sharia cannot limit anything that promotes growth. The Sharia can only limit expressions that curtail growth, such as hate speech, discriminatory speech, so on and so forth. However, in such cases, the Sharia merely interprets the growth dynamics and bars whatever is inconsistent with growth. Such interventions by the Sharia are not independent judgments of the Sharia, rather they are based on an understanding of the property of growth. The property of growth being existential can be rationally discerned. As such, reason has primacy over Sharia, and hence only reason can determine the nature of freedom and its limits based on its appreciation of the growth property. Moreover, Sharia evaluation and critique on the basis of the growth property. Now, before commencing with the discussion, I would like to state that in my understanding, religion in essence is God orientation only. Whereas the religious prescriptions, since they are set in a given time and place, are contingent to existential properties which assist in the attainment of God orientation within a given context. The primacy of reason. The very idea that Islam or Sharia can set a limit to freedom of expression grants primacy to the Sharia and places it above criticism. This, however, is inaccurate since Sharia at its inception was at the behest, uh, at, at the mercy of reason for its verification. Had it not been for the free reign enjoyed by reason, Islam at the very outset would not have been able to challenge pagan theologies and customs. The Quranic method was one of open, critic, open uh, criticism and asking the listeners to examine the rationality of the prevalent systems. For the Quran to challenge demonstrates its own freedom of expression and for it to ask its audience to critique their beliefs is its invitation to freedom of thought. For reasons, for reason to be able to verify the validity of the challenges posed by the Quran shows one, primacy of reason over the revelation generally and two, that the challenges of the Quran were in line and in sync with the basis upon which reason operates. From an existential perspective, borrowing from Sadrian ontological principles uh, of existence, uh, ex ontological principles, existence is unitive, self-conscious, and dynamic in the sense of moving from a state of potentiality to actuality of its inherent potential. Being unitive implies the alignment of reason and revelation, whereas being self-conscious and motion to completion implies an inherent telos within existent entities that drives existence existent entities to the gradual attainment of their potential. Additionally, gradual state of completion implies ontological flux in the process of growth. 
From this, we can conclude that Sharia teachings can only be meaningful if they are both liberating and fall in line with the growth nature of existence and as such are verifiable through reason. Therefore, Sharia theology has to be liberating, whereas Sharia normativity has to be growth promoting for reason to ascend to its validity. The question that arises here is what prompts reason into inquiry of whatever of whether a, pro a proposition is in line with growth or not. Existence being unitive, self-conscious and with an inherent telos shows that there is an immediate but uncritical understanding of what is in sync and in line with growth. This immediate knowledge is intuition, which is existentially embedded within humans. Therefore, when the Quran questioned the logic of pagan rituals and beliefs, the listeners were immediately prompted into thinking, uh, into thinking, since the Quranic challenges somehow made sense and resonated with them at an intuitive level, which were subsequently reasoned with and accepted or rejected. Thus, Sharia teachings have to be liberating and in line with existential property of growth and subject to verification by reason. The existential feature of growth and flux in normativity. The Sharia teachings consists of theology and normativity. When we consider the historical phenomena of successive revelations, uh, Judaism, Christianity and Islam, and the Sharia, and the chronological nature of the revelation of the Quran, uh, from the Meccan to the Medinan period and the Quranic abrogations, we find an overall consistency in terms of the theological teachings of the nature of God, eschatology, sense of justice and acquisition of virtues, which are all considered as liberating and purposeful in relation to the completion of the inherent potential. However, the same is not true for normativity. The successive Abrahamic revelations where, where the latter superseded the preceding and the chronological revelation from the Meccan to the Medinan phase, where the Quran was constantly tweaking its laws in order to cater for the growing community, in addition to the Quranic abrogation, all demonstrate change in normativity in line with growing aptitudes. The flux in norms was in line with the with what promotes growth and constitutes justice with the growing existential aptitudes, since justice is giving everything its rightful due, and on the other hand, aptitudes were constantly changing. Now we have certain assumptions about Sharia normativity, which are problematic. Since Islam is considered by us to be the last ordained communication, it is assumed that Islam has finality and hence it is infallible in its normativity. These assumptions are inaccurate in terms of normativity since the revelation and the sunnah are both confined by time and space and as such there can be no finality to any system of normativity within an evolving ontology. With no finality comes fallibility of any given system of normativity beyond its immediate and similar contexts. Even within its own context, Islamic normativity was at most optimal but not infallible, as is quite evident, and there are many examples in the Quran itself. If there have been successive revelations and there has been flux throughout the Quranic revelatory era, then why should this existential motion come to a standstill? after the revelation. Going on to freedom of thought and expression, freedom of thought and expression are 
an integral part of the growth process. A necessary feature of growth generally is lack of impediment and availability of the raw materials essential for growth. The growth process requires a constant motion of departing from restrictive forms and emergence into newer forms, as Sadra puts it. In other words, there is constant need for being liberated. The human soul is no different in this respect. It constantly actualizes its own potential through acquisition of knowledge, which results by Sadrian standards in the superimposition of greater forms in an evolutionary process. For this process to take place, it requires an unhindered state of encountering newer ideas and access to knowledge through which it gains inner direction. Subsequently, as a result of freedom of thought, the soul expresses its beliefs and ideas. These expressions are reasoned with and inevitably contribute to the evolutionary process of human growth. The whole of this process is denoted by the existential maxim of non-coercion or no coercion in deen, uh, within the Quran. Now, if Islam is willful surrender, then where do we place freedom of thought and um, expression? Islam by its very designation is willful surrender to God. This requires the freedom to reflect upon the existence and nature of God and the human purpose as articulated by religion. Only when it makes sense and is, it is acknowledged does it become effective in yielding the purpose. God states, had he wanted, he would have given every soul its guidance. Thus coercion in matters of belief does not allow for the actualization of the soul if its actualization is through meaningful and meaningfully being directed to God. Thus a, person, thus, a person not only reserves the right to critique and make sense of theology, but also has a right to reject it outright or in part. The Quran often encourages the readers to challenge its content and teachings. Moreover, any form of coercion defeats the purpose of God, which is entailed in the growth of the human soul willfully. Additionally, it does not make sense that Islam had the liberty of questioning the validity of contending theologies, but would not allow critique of its own teachings. Reverting to the norm norm normativity of Islam, the system of rights within Islam, forms of governance, modes of economy, and the rules of commerce, together with the forms of devotions, be they directly derived from the unambiguous texts of the Quran and Sunnah, or interpretations of non-divinely inspired human minds are all open to critique. The only reason they were e effective and made sense was due to their efficacy in liberating minds and promoting growth and promoting growth. However, since the Sharia rules were an expression of what was most optimal in providing growth within its own existential context, then inevitably those normative forms lose their efficacy with the evolution and growth of the human community. This is gestured to by the verse, he lifts the burdens from your shoulders and breaks the chains that fettered, uh, that tied you, to mean that there were restrictions upon you, the prophet came and gave you growth. And that's why those norms made sense. However, at present, with the growth of aptitude and refinement of the human nobility, unequal shares of inheritance in a setup where a woman is an equal provider, wife beating, slavery, concubinage, public flogging, and uh, decapitation of limbs are unjust, 
non-egalitarian and undignified. In the near future, when humans begin to colonize other planets, even the forms of devotions will have to undergo change in line with the essence and the growth factor a given devotional form was intended to yield. With that, we come to the notion of sacred space. Is there anything that cannot be critiqued? In essence, there is no sacred space within religion that can curtail the freedom to think, be it in the form of questioning established dogma with the threat that it constitutes an act of disbelief or barring literature in the name of heretical literature or kutub dilal, neither can the freedom in essence be denied by the notion of being removed from, relig from religion through rejection of established norms in kardururiyat al-deen or madhab or the, law of, or, or the law of apostasy and blasphemy. Religion, like any other system, needs to create a space for appropriate expression where ideas can be openly and meaningfully discussed uh, and grant access to re relevant literature relating to the subject of discussion. This was the initial method of the Quran. Contextual restrictions uh, in order to create greater freedom. Undeniably, restriction, restrictions have to be placed in order to curtail propagation of certain detrimental ideologies. History has witnessed the hijacking of the minds of whole nations by extremist ideologies. ISIS is a very recent example. However, the restrictions placed have to be momentary until proper forum for discussion uh, are created and relevant information is made available. In principle, restrictions are placed in order to create greater freedom of thought and expression. The Quran, the Prophet and Imams resorted to admo admonishing people to exercise willful abstention by stating that certain inquiry may lead to detrimental effects, such as the verse stating, do not ask questions when verses are being revealed. Or the Prophet asking the Muslims not to inquire into the nature of God and the Imams questioning against thinking around the issue of free will and destiny for the fear that the people would lose faith. They never stated that it was a sin to think or a form of disbelief to think into such things. Obviously, in case of minors and uh, mentally challenged individuals, Restrictions have to be placed in relation to their access to information due to lack of aptitude. I'm just going to go quickly through a couple of problem areas that Dr. Fatimi pointed out to me yesterday. Hume points out that there is a significant difference between positive statements and normative statements. Thus, for a reasoner, uh, only uh, thus if a reasoner only has access to non-moral and non-evaluative factual premises. The reasoner cannot logically infer the truth of moral statements. These problems are to do with existential limitations due to misinformation or lack of aptitude in discerning things ac accurately. They do not contravene the thesis of freedom as an absolute existential property of growth. A more pressing problem is the epistemic distinction between the statement of fact and statements of value and the unbridgeable gap between the two. The fact-value distinction becomes blurred within, an in, within a unitive scheme which postulates, uh, postulates self-actualization and increase in existence as an inherent future uh, feature of humanity. Thus, the fact that things are evolving through the inherent telos suggests that things have to be allowed to evolve. 
Of course, the question of what constitutes increase in existence and actualization of potential at a human level needs to be worked out by considering the telos of growth. Sorry, needs to be worked out. But considering the telos of growth, there is an inbuilt mechanism that constantly allows for self correction and rectification. Thus, even though we are bound to get things wrong, we will inevitably tweak our understanding and acquire a more accurate course. With the constant change of aptitudes due to, due to evolution, there can never be a state of in, infallibility in relation to form of governance or system of rights. Fallibilism is a concomitant of the growth process. The whole human endeavor is a constant struggle to arrive at the most optimal state at any given point. The discourse on rights is predicated on the principle of justice, which existentially means to give everything its rightful due in accordance with its existential aptitude. And therefore, in theory, no system of rights can be optimal beyond its context, given the growth dynamism. Thus, fallib uh, fallibilism is an absolute norm that cannot be circumvented in essence. Therefore, considering the evolutionary nature of existence, the meta norms to be abided by are justice in giving justice in giving everything its rightful due, removal of restriction and increased freedom within a fallibilistic framework. Uh, that's the presentation. Thank you.